0: So looking at uh, Revelation chapter 2, the letter to the church in Pergamum. Jesus says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. It's the third letter in this this group of seven in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. The first letter to the church at Ephesus dealt with a church that was doctrinally straight but had lost their love for the Lord Jesus. The second letter to the church in Smyrna was to a church that was faithful, that was uh, suffering tribulation and poverty and was encouraged not to fear in spite of what was coming because of their faithfulness. The Lord was going to guarantee them eternal life. The church in Pergamum is the the first church that actually represents kind of a challenge. And that's because of the the circumstance in which the church finds itself. The description of Jesus sets up the letter to come. This letter is the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. We see in Hebrews 4.12... The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Ephesians 6 commands us to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. So this picture that we need to have in our minds, even though it's, it's uh, it's a vision that John is having, Jesus is not walking around heaven with a big... Machete hanging out of his mouth. It's a picture. It's a vision. But the picture is that the, the Word of God, the Scriptures, have come directly from the mouth of Christ. It's very important that we understand that. It's so important that the, the uh, I don't know if we would call them Pergamanians or what, but it's very important that this church understand that the Word that they have from the Lord is the very Word of Christ. It is not human writings about God that God looked at and said, "I okay, I like that. It's something that has actually come from Jesus' own mouth. The word of God is more than good news about salvation. It's the power of God for salvation. Romans chapter 1, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel, the word of God, is not just where we find the message of salvation. It is the message of salvation. And it doesn't just tell us about the power of salvation. It is the power of salvation. When we believe the message of the gospel, salvation comes. That's how we're saved. And Peter writes in 1 Peter that we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So the scriptures that Jesus gives, the written word of God, the infallible, inerrant, preserved text of scripture, is is holy like anything else, unlike anything else that's ever been known on on the face of the earth. It is the very word of God to us. Now, Jesus is infinite. (coughs) Jesus is God fully. He's infinite. He's eternal Even John writes just about his earthly ministry. There's not enough room to write uh, everything that Jesus did. It's clear that Jesus did more and said more than is in Scripture. Here's the thing, though. Jesus didn't say anything or do anything that isn't supported by Scripture. He didn't do or say anything that, that differs or counteracts Scripture or contradicts Scripture. He didn't vary from what the text of Scripture says. I would make this comparison. I could talk about my wife for five minutes or for five hours. If you listen to me for five minutes, you won't hear anything different than you would hear in five hours. In five hours, you would hear more detail. You would hear more illustrations. You would hear more stories. But the essence of what I would say in five minutes would not differ at all in five hours. So the word of God that has been given to us from the very mouth of Jesus... (coughs) carries his authority, it bears his fingerprints, it has his nature. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.16 says that the scriptures, the written scriptures are God-breathed. That's the Greek word thuopnostos. It means that it, it came from his mouth. It's not simply words about God. We're not used to this thinking, but the word of God is also the means by which judgment will come. Revelation 19.15 says, From his mouth, from Jesus' mouth, this is at the second coming, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This is the second coming in, in judgment. By the way, the... the uh, the battle hymn of the Republic, My Eyes Have Seen the Glory of the Coming of the Lord, is, is about this moment, the second coming. And the wine press of God, which is judgment, as God brings it. In Revelation 19:21. as it's actually carried out, we see the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And that's a picture of Jesus, as we'll see when we get into Revelation 19. Some want something that's more direct and personal. You can't have more direct and personal than right from his mouth. It's his breath. The word of God is his breath. Some want something that's more miraculous. You can't have more miraculous than God breathed through the hearts and minds of hands of men and then sealed in, in writing for 2,000 years. When Jesus had attracted a very large group, remember in John 6, he had... He had uh, Uh, multiplied bread and fish, and thousands followed him. They wanted to make him king. He escaped across the sea. He escaped. He left across the sea. They followed him there. He kind of escaped. They wanted to make him king by force. When they got there, he engaged them in conversation, and he wanted them to believe in him. And so he said, you need to... Believe in the one God has sent. You need to eat the bread sent from heaven. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. Coming to Jesus, believing in Jesus means eating and drinking. Rather, eating and drinking, Jesus means believing in him. It means taking him in entirely. Well, he was talking about faith. He was talking about belief. But the people sitting there thought he was talking about cannibalism. And it it offended them terribly, and they began leaving. The crowds left, and the Pharisees left, and then that outer circle of disciples left. So many left that Jesus turns to the twelve and says, are you leaving too? Peter, speaking for the group, says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. So there's there's not a moment in there or I'm sorry, and then he says, we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter didn't say, why would we leave? You're doing miracles. You're feeding thousands, and you're raising the dead, and you're healing, and you're doing this, and you're you're walking on the water. Why would we leave? Peter's focus, their focus, is the word that Jesus was teaching. Not the signs. The signs underscored the word they undergirded the word and we have those signs repeated for us in scripture so we see the authority of the word just to make this even more poignant in luke chapter 16 or 16 jesus tells the story of the rich man and lazarus the the, the lazarus is a poor man he dies um, the rich man dies the rich man is one who had kind of abused lazarus lazarus it just was in a terrible position they end up separated in, in Shoal. Lazarus is, is in the place of, of contentment. Abraham's bosom, it's called. The rich man is on the other side in a place of judgment, torment awaiting final judgment. And this conversation ensues back and forth where the rich man wants some comfort and Abraham says, what comfort did you give Lazarus? You're unrighteous. You're unrighteous. There is no comfort here. This is not the place of comfort. The rich man says, at least send someone to warn my brothers. And Abraham says, they have the law and the prophets. And the rich man says, but if someone rises from the dead, surely they'll listen. And Abraham says, if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't hear if someone rises from the dead. From the very words of Jesus, we have an affirmation. It's not miracles. It's the word of God that brings faith and that saves. This is the Jesus who is speaking to the church at Pergamum. He's speaking with authority. He's speaking with power. He's speaking with eternal truth. Now, he gives them a commendation. The commendation is, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. (coughs) You're holding on tight, he says, to my name. The, The idea is being gripped, and they will not let it go. And they're not denying the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, when he says, my faith, it's not faith Jesus had, it's faith in Jesus. You're not denying me, you're clinging tightly to my name. It's an absolute fantastic picture. And, and Jesus even puts in the, I, I like the yet. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast. If anybody's going to tumble, if anybody's going to walk away from the Lord, surely it would be those who are immersed in a satanic culture. And Jesus isn't surprised because he knows all things, but he kind of speaks this wonder into his voice. You dwell where, you live where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells, and yet you hold fast. And you don't deny my faith. Pergamum was a terribly dark place. Jesus calls it where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. It was the first city in Asia to have a a temple to the emperor, Augustus. There were other temples there to other, other uh, emperors, such as Hadrian. There was a temple to Dionysius. Dionysius was a, a Roman god. The Greek god was Bacchus. Dionysius promised life after death. D- Dionysius was the god of wine. D- Dionysius promised a good life now, a comfortable, pleasurable life now, an eternal life. Dionysius, frankly, promised your best life now. Worship me and you can have it all. Eternal life and everything here. They had the uh, the temple of Demeter, the goddess Demeter, who promised an abundant grain harvest. She was also a goddess of forgiveness. If you needed your sins forgiven, you would go to her temple and you would be drenched with bull's blood for forgiveness. There was a massive medical center called the Asclepium there dedicated to the god Asclepius, who is was a god of healing? If you needed healing, you would go. You would be interviewed by priests. If you were terminally ill, they would not treat you. If you were pregnant, they wouldn't treat you because the mortality rate, infant mortality rate, was so high. But provided you made it into being treated, uh, they might have you lie on the floor and let serpents crawl all over your body. Others were placed into rooms and given narcotics. Were they think opium? That would cause dreams. The dreams would be told to the priest. The priest would interpret the dreams, and then they would prescribe a treatment. Interestingly enough, the records that remain, most of the treatments involved getting plenty of exercise and sunshine and having a healthy diet. Some things never change. When you recovered, then you could climb the hill there at at that medical center to the temple and offer sacrifices to Asclepius given thanks for being healed. Roman religion had, uh, as far as Wikipedia is concerned, 210 major and minor deities, 210. There were 205 scheduled festivals and feast days during the year. And that doesn't cover all of those that were kind of floating and at random. 200, or not 205, 255. 255 pagan festivals every year. Pergamum had dozens of temples, dozens of temples. It was where Satan dwells. Where Satan dwells isn't this temple or that temple or this place or that place. It's it's kind of fun reading commentaries on Revelation because they're trying to figure out where exactly. It's like it's the whole thing. It's not just the temple of Zeus or Asclepium or Demeter. It's the whole city is where Satan dwells. The whole city is dark. And Jesus says, yet you have not denied my faith. You're clinging tightly to my name. We need to understand, because of what he's going to bring up as a rebuke, we need to understand that there's no such thing as exclusivity in the Roman religious world. As far as they were concerned, Dionysius didn't care if you worshipped Demeter and vice versa. They didn't care. They didn't care if you went to the, the feasts of Zeus or, or Jupiter or Juno or, or whoever. They, the gods didn't care. The priests didn't care. There's no exclusivity. Everybody did everything. It, it, was, it was a huge smorgasbord of, of religion and teachings and beliefs, virtually all of which were aimed at your pleasure and your contentment and your happiness, often involving alcohol, often involving drugs and hallucinogenics, often involving uh, sexual immorality and sexual perversion. No exclusivity at all. And here comes the church of Jesus Christ clinging tightly to his name, refusing to deny that faith. Because God is one who demands exclusivity. He is the one true God. If you read uh, Genesis through Malachi, I'm just about to finish. Uh, Tuesday I finish my 90 days through the Bible. If you want to join me on this, uh, Subscribe to my Twitter account every morning at, at 6 o'clock, I think, 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock. You'll, you'll get today's that day's readings. If you can't do all of them, it would take you about 20 minutes. If you can't do all of them, do the Old Testament or do the New Testament. Do something. But I'm just about done. And and what you get when you read through the whole Old Testament 90 days in these big 10, 12, 13 chapter chunks is you see the flow of the story. As God creates, as God... Uh, Creates man, gives man a command, man falls, God begins to construct things for redemption. God calls uh, Abraham, calls the sons of Abraham, calls a nation out of Israel to be a people for his own possession, a people for his own name, a people that would worship him, a people that would honor him. And he, he, he begins the law by saying, or the, the Ten Commandments, by saying, I am God, there is no other, you will not worship any, any other gods. And yet Israel did that nonstop. In fact, while Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments, the people were breaking them. Ultimately, the, 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 un, the unified kingdom under Solomon and, I'm sorry, under Saul, And David was divided because of Solomon's idolatry. The northern kingdom Israel was taken into captivity primarily because of their idolatry, because they kept running after other gods is the way it's put. The southern kingdom Judah followed them into captivity about 140 years later for the same reason, idolatry. God says to them, you're you're an adulterous wife, you're a prostitute. There are other words that are used in some translations that really punch home this reality. I think if you can say that there's a worst sin in the Old Testament, it's unfaithfulness to God above any other sin that's there. God doesn't send them into captivity in Babylon uh, because of uh, adultery, because they're stealing, because they're not taking care of the poor. He sends them in because of their idolatry because they refuse to recognize him as God alone. The same thing continues on in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is God's only begotten son. He is the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to the Father but by him. There's one name given under heaven by which men must be saved. That's the name of Christ. Jesus is the one appointed by the Father to judge the living and the dead. There is only one Lord. Those who believe in Jesus have life. Those who don't believe in Jesus are already condemned. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. Biblical worship and faith is exclusive worship and faith. It honors God and God alone. And as soon as somebody adds in Jesus and something else, they're no longer worshiping Jesus. Now, somebody might say, well, their intention is to worship Jesus. They're thinking about worshiping Jesus. We have to bring what God says to Israel in Isaiah 1, forward, where God says, I am sick of your offerings, and I will not hear them. The people in in Isaiah's time were continuing to offer sacrifices to the one true God, but God said, you're playing games with me, and so I reject them. I refuse to receive them. Whatever you think you're doing, whatever you say you're doing, you're not doing. God has the right to determine what worship is, and biblical worship is exclusive. So the believers in Pergamum understand this. They're clinging tightly to Jesus' name, and they will not let it go. They have not denied the faith that has been given to them. The one true God remains the object of their worship. His Son remains their Savior. The Spirit remains their source of strength and encouragement. But there's a problem. The problem is found in verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, (coughs) but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also, just as with Balaam, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now Balaam, you find the story of Balaam in numbers. If you remember the story of the prophet uh, riding the donkey and the donkey talked to him, that's Balaam. Balak was the king of Moab. Moab. Israel had just absolutely creamed the Amorites and then they'd camped right next to Moab and the king of Moab was paranoid, understandably so. So he called Balaam. Balaam was known as a, as a diviner, as a prophet of sorts. And he wanted Balaam to go pronounce a curse on Israel. So paid him money to do that. And So Balaam said, okay. Well, on his way, the donkey says, no, you won't do that. Bizarrely enough, Balaam never questions the fact that a donkey is talking to him. Balaam goes to curse Israel, and four times the Holy Spirit overrides his will and forces him to speak a blessing. He says, I can't. I can't preach anything. I can't speak anything but a blessing to these people. So every time Balak tried to get Israel cursed, he got Israel blessed. This is the love of God for his people, that he overrides the will and the mind of a pagan to speak truth. doesn't mean Balaam was a righteous man. He was a very unrighteous man. Balak still wanted Israel dealt with. He couldn't get a curse pronounced on Israel. What can he do? Balaam said, I can tell you how to do this. Now, we don't know because we have this conversation. We know because later on in Numbers 31, Moses said it's Balaam who taught them how to do this. So at some point, Balak said, How do I get around Israel? Balaam said, I can't pre- speak curses upon them. Balak said, I know, but there's got to be something. And Balaam said, Have your women go seduce them. So that they make offerings to false gods and they commit sexual immorality. And they did. They were very successful at it. They are so successful in Numbers 25, it says 24,000 died in a plague that God brought because of his people's unfaithfulness to him. The plague stopped because Phinehas, who was the grandson of Aaron, the brother of Moses, took a spear and went into a tent where a Hebrew man had taken a Midianite woman and he killed them both with a spear. And at that point, the plague stopped. But 24,000 died. 24,000 died. That's Balaam. The Nicolaitans are doing what Balaam did. The Nicolaitans are coming into the church as false teachers, urging believers to go worship false gods and to commit sexual immorality. We've got to understand that uh, these are not Christians doing this. These are not Christians doing this. Whatever their motivations are, might be money, it might be power, I doubt that they actually had the full awareness that that, uh, Satan would have. These are the people of God. They're blessed. They're selected forever. They're secure in Christ. But I'm going to do what I can to destroy them. There had to be some kind of a personal motivation for the Nicolaitans. But they're there. This church that has gripped Christ that will not let him go and will not deny the faith, at the same time, will not put up a barrier to false teachers. And so Jesus says, I have this against you. Now, in Pergamum, there's no exclusivity in the temples. The Nicolaitans are people who, have no problem on Monday going to the temple of Demeter, and on Wednesday going to Dionysius and having a bunch of drinks, and maybe Thursday to the Temple of Athena for the big festival there. And on Saturday, of course, you're going to worship Saturn at the Temple of Saturn. And on Sunday, go with the Christians. No big deal. When the preaching of the gospel came in, the Nicolaitans were the one who said, Hey, cool, another God somebody else to worship. And they love going to these, these temples because of the alcohol, the drugs, the sex, the noise, the music, the just the, the frenzy, the dancing, the nuttiness of it. Like Memorial Field on game day. I mean, just bizarre, just nuts. What happens when they go to meet with the church well they're they're all of a sudden not being directed to a huge temple now they're going to somebody's home and the focus is on the word of god they're reading it out loud they're praying it they're singing it they're teaching it they pause to remember their savior and his death and resurrection by sharing a simple meal of bread and wine they're sober they treat one another with care and respect. Their love for their God runs all the way through their being. But frankly, it's boring. It's boring. There's nothing, there's no bling to, to this worship. It's unemotional. It's tame. It's not exciting. As far as the pagans are concerned, it's shallow. It's, it's just, it, it, it's passionless. And the Nicolaitans say, come on, you guys can do better than that. What's the big deal? Lighten up, relax, enjoy all of what life has to offer. Most of you have come out of those temples. You know what you're missing. It's okay to worship other gods. It's okay to commit sexual immorality. Sure, your god doesn't want you to do that, but look at all the gods who are okay with it. One of the things that, that I see in uh, in church magazines and pastoral magazines and evangelism magazines and websites, the big thing for the last decade or two has been engage the culture. Gotta go engage the culture. This is what the Nicolaitans were doing was engaging the church. Now, if by engage the culture we mean go to where unbelievers are, don't be afraid of them. Be righteous. Cling to Christ. Don't deny the faith and go be with them. Then go do that. But too many are, are thinking that engaging the culture means be like the culture. Be like the world. And so maybe there's some people in the church at Pergamum who are saying, you know, they're raising a good point. Our services are kind of boring. Let's be like the, let's, let's be like the Temple of Diana. That, they really got it happening. Let's let's be like that. We'll get more people. And they're they're holding on to the name of Christ. They're holding on to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But in the face of these false teachers, whatever the reason is, whether they're actually interested in what they're saying or whether they're just too timid, they will not say no. Jude writes about those sorts of, of false teachers. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts. That's the, the Lord's table. Hidden reefs means they're masquerading. means they're fakes. And they will rip the bottom out of your ship one of these days. That's what a reef does. Hides beneath the water. Linda and I have been out on the Elkhorn River in our kayaks a couple times. You're charging right along, and man, you hit that sand and you grind to a halt. Fortunately, the sand doesn't rip the bottom out of the kayak. They feast with you without fear. They're shepherds feeding themselves. They are waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. These are not believers. These are not believers who are are differing over whether we use wine or grape juice with communion. Here we use grape juice. In, uh, in Creighton, the, the outer part of the little dish is, is wine, and the inner circle is grape juice for people who want grape juice. Unfortunately, the last two or three communion Sundays, they've used white wine. So, white wine and white grape juice, it's like, so what's what? But, you know, it, there are people who would say if it's not wine, it's not communion. The only thing in the Bible that we see is wine, it was alcoholic wine. Wine for communion. I don't think it's something to argue about. I won't argue about it. They're not people saying, well, I really would rather use the King James than the New American Standard. It's not about that. It's people saying, let's put Jesus in his place and then let's add Zeus and then let's add Demeter and then let's add the culture. Let's go be holy for Jesus, but then let's go be wicked for Caesar. Caesar. And Jesus says to the the pastors and the elders of this church This is a problem See these false teachers are facing hell for their rebellion And by not confronting them you're abandoning them to that fate If we believe in the providence of God, we believe everybody who walks through that door is here by the providence of God. If somebody comes in through that door by the providence of God, promoting a false doctrine, they're here so that they can hear the truth. But we have to have the courage to say, no, you're wrong. This is what's true. I've I've had people tell me I'm harsh. Me? Harsh? I love my kids. I love my grandkids. Evie is just a year old. If I was out at Sarah and Elliot's and I saw Evie bending down, reaching for a rattlesnake coiled in the grass, I'd be harsh. I would scream. I would jump. I wouldn't respect her feelings. I'm certainly not going to respect the snake's feelings because death comes from that. Our dumb little dog, gosh, our dumb little dog, the one who got bit on the nose a few months ago, she got bit on the leg. She comes in last night crying, crying. (laughs) She can't put her leg down. She won't bend it. You know, if they break a nail or something, they hold it up like this. She's holding it out straight. We start looking at her, and she's got a bite. She got bit by one of the neighbor dogs. Neighbor dogs are sweet dogs. But little dog, big dog, when you zig instead of zagging, you get your arm in the wrong place and they're barking. So I called the vet. I don't know what the vet's going to say. The vet says, ah, give her an aspirin. Wash it off. Don't put anything on it. Just let it be open. Okay. Every time we're outside and I see that stupid little dog... Running back and forth, I say, hey, quit that. You're going to get hurt. These teachers are going to hell. Love says, tell them that they're wrong. If I have the opportunity to meet with somebody for a year, and get to know them, gosh, I'm more than willing to make it a, a dialogue. When there's not time... You want, to, you want to be the one to stand before the Lord in heaven and know you had the opportunity to simply say, that's wrong, and you didn't do it. I don't want to be there. Unbelievers are turned away from the gospel. See, we also have people coming in along with those false teachers who are really hungry. They're really being drawn uh, drawn to to Christ. They need salvation. They need forgiveness. Their hearts are yearning for freedom. And they hear me say... You need to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Turn away from that old life and pursue Christ. And he'll save you. He'll give you new life. He'll fill you with the Spirit and transform you. And then this guy over here says, you don't have to do that. Well, now we've got somebody who wants to hear the gospel and we have a a lying Hittite on the other side. What What do you do about the false teacher? Do you tell this... Unbeliever, he's wrong. As you share the gospel, or do you say, well, you know, everybody's got to kind of make up their own mind. I think the, the biggest issue here is that Jesus is dishonored by these people. When Linda and I were first, were buying our house, we bought it directly from the, uh, the homeowner and we agreed to have an attorney and we both paid half the attorney's cost. It was actually very, much cheaper than the typical thing and and uh, didn't take nearly as long. But there was a point where um, the bank called and said, we need this form from the attorney. And I said, okay, so I called the attorney's office, talked to the secretary, or Linda did. Sorry, Linda called the attorney's office and talked to the secretary and said, we need this form. And the secretary said, I don't know what that is. We don't do that. And she called me and I said... Hmm. So I called the attorney, and I said, my wife called, talked to your secretary, said, we need this form. Your secretary said that we don't do that, or you don't do that. He said, of course we do that. We do it all the time. Come on down. I'll do it for you. Okay. I drive down. I go in the office. She says, I did not tell your wife. I said, well, I've been married to this woman for 20 years. If you think I'm going to believe her over you, you're nuts. Why don't you just let it go? Believe you over her? Yeah, yeah. That's probably why she gave me a big hug. No, thank you. This is this this is why you don't free freestyle when you preach. If you think I'm gonna I'm gonna believe you over her, you're nuts. So I, and I just said, so leave it alone. This boy. You start accusing my wife of stuff. Mm. Accuse my wife and my kids of stuff. Mm. Well, we should, have, we, we should have the same kind of devotion to the Lord Jesus, that when somebody is being insulting to him, when they refuse to listen, there comes a point where we say, you know, I'm done talking. Now, this is the problem. 2016 is the year of tolerance. You've got to be tolerant, got to be tolerant of everything, got to listen to everything. Everybody's equally valid, every opinion is valid. You can't say no to somebody, and whatever you do, don't hurt their feelings. Oh, if you're the, the what? If you're, if you're a white male conservative. Oh, if you're a white male conservative, you don't have feelings. Nope. So, so understand this. God is intolerant. Jesus Christ is intolerant. The Spirit of God is intolerant. Truth is truth. Righteousness is righteousness. Holiness is holiness. Good is good. Bad is bad. Jesus says there is a narrow way that leads to life and there are few people who are on it. There's a broad way that leads to destruction and it is packed. God is intolerant. You can't worship an intolerant God tolerantly. See, what we risk doing is we end up, we, we, we risk end up being like the Pergamanians, the Pergamines, saying, well, personally, I hold on to Christ and I will not deny the faith, but who am I to say for you? Well, I'm nobody to say for you, but I can't be faithful to him if I don't deliver a biblical message. Now, the good news for you is that this rebuke and the the, the job of this is put into the hands of pastors and elders in the church. That's what Paul says to Titus. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, but not only of those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Paul says that to Titus. That job falls to me as a pastor and falls to Dennis as an elder here. If false teaching comes up, we have to deal with it. We have to deal with the false teachers in an absolute straight, brutal fashion. Nothing else is going to get through to them. If you have a Christian conscience, if you have a born-again conscience, you understand that you are hypersensitive to truth and you're hypersensitive to reality. If you're dead in sin, it's like you've got 30 quilts covering you. And when somebody comes up and they give you just a little nuance they don't even know you're doing it so you you have to be not brutal i don't mean to do this not brutal but clear so clear that somebody says there's no mistaking what you're saying the prescription for change jesus says in verse 16 is therefore repent that's the prescription The warning is, if you don't repent, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. The the prescription is change your thinking, change your behavior. Stop trying to accommodate unbelievers. Stop trying to make unbelievers feel safe in your church in terms of what they believe. Make them welcome. For heaven's sakes, make them welcome. But making them welcome does not mean giving a thumbs up to their doctrine. Now the warning is interesting. If you don't repent, Jesus says, I will come to you soon and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. So let me say that again. If you don't repent, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The church isn't in in any danger from the Lord Jesus. He's doing this to purify his church and to keep her protected and to keep her pure. His goal is our purity. He loves his bride. He died for us. He will fight and destroy those who try to harm us. So, okay, why not just Let Jesus deal with false teachers. Well, for one thing, if I do that as a pastor, I'm being disobedient because I've been commanded that when I'm aware of those things to address them. Dennis would be disobedient in that case. So that's the first thing. We've already seen the verse in Titus. But the second thing is that when when we go and act in obedience... We're going with an appeal that somebody who is teaching false doctrine repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. When Jesus comes, he says, I come to make war. There's not a time that word is used in the New Testament where it's a a nice word. He's going to destroy them. He's going to destroy them if they harm us. I don't want anybody to be proud. I don't want you to think any more of yourselves than you ought, or any more of us as a congregation than we ought. But Jesus prefers us. We're his church, we're his bride. Put a Christian next to a non Christian, the Christian is the one Jesus prefers. You can't get around that. There's destruction and condemnation coming for unbelievers. You can't get around that. He won't cast us aside in order to show preference to an unbeliever who is still in rebellion and still his enemy. And so in a sense, Jesus says, look, we can do this two ways. You can confront those people with the truth and with the gospel and be praying for them, praying that they would turn, praying that they would repent, praying that they would be saved or I can come and destroy them. If we love him and we love the gospel, we'll do what he asks us to do, which is to take that difficult step, and it's an uncomfortable step, which is why he doesn't make that step the church's step as a whole. He doesn't ask every member of the church to do this. He commands me to do it. He commands Dennis to do it. Your role as the church is to let us. If the moment comes where we have a false teacher coming in saying, you can go do this, you can go do that, and it comes time to say, no, you can't, then the role of the church is to back the truth. Not to trust me because I'm a great guy, because I'm smart, but to back the truth. To be praying for us as we deal with these things. The truth is that the Nicolaitans are harming believers because of their doctrines. Their very presence is dangerous. They upset whole families. They teach for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Shameful gain isn't money always, sometimes it's power. We we have a race for the White House going on right now that is a race for power, not money. So, the promise at the very end, let's cover that quickly. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the Holy Spirit speaking to the one who conquers, to the one who does what Jesus says to do. <coughs> so, cling tightly to his name, be faithful to the to. Uh, don't deny the truth once for all delivered to the saints, and who repents of this unfaithful tolerance. He says, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, these are visions. There is no jar of manna tucked behind Jesus' throne so that when you go to him, he's going to say, don't tell anybody. Here. It's a picture of the Old Testament provision of Israel in the wilderness as God met their needs. What he's saying is, I'm going to give you life eternally. Hidden isn't tucked away, hidden is protected, hidden is preserved. The white stone is interesting because it doesn't come from Jewish culture, it comes from Gentile culture, it comes from athletic culture. At an an athletic event, the winners would be given white stones with their names written on it that gained them admission admission to the banquet that followed the event. So Jesus is not saying when the rapture happens, Michael the angel is going to stand, be standing there with a billion white stones. Okay, here you go. Here's yours. Here's, wait a second. Yeah, I don't have, what are you, here's yours. He's not, it's not that. It's, look, I'm guaranteeing you eternal life with a new identity, with a new name, a name of intimacy, a name that only you and the Lord Jesus know. Okay. I called Sarah Sarah Bear until she was 15 or 16 years old, Sarah Bear. Nobody else calls her Sarah Bear. I call her Sarah Bear. And then it was Gracie Bear, but well, not as long. See, you, you have those names. It's a special name. Grace this is my daughter Grace. I never introduce her as Gracie, but to me she's Gracie. Well, that's true. So, but you're taller. Well, no, maybe not anymore. Yeah, I think she's pretty close now. Yep. The promise is life. The promise is Jesus saying, look, the Nicolaitans are coming in here and saying you're missing it. You're not missing anything. The Nicolaitans are saying, but, but Dionysius gives life and Demeter forgives. No, there's only one who gives life. Hold on to your faith. Hold on to Christ and hold it out to those who are wrong so that they may be saved. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the love that you have for us and for giving us Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we are clean in him. We thank you that we can cling to Christ because he clings to us. We thank you that your word is so absolutely true and absolutely authoritative. Lord, if there's any tendency that we have, and I know that I have it, to, uh, to be timid or to back away from false teaching, please put an end to that. I know that we can, we can do that. We can stand for the truth without being brutal, without being ugly about it. But Lord, let us stand for the truth first and learn how to do it well as we go. The world wants to silence us with talk of tolerance and shaming us. The world is the most intolerant place there is. We welcome all here that we may share the gospel with them. We are not welcome in most of the places the world gathers anymore. So we ask that you would go before us. We thank you for the promise that you have given us of eternal life. And Lord, with with John at the end of the book... We pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And in your name we pray, amen.